You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 469 of this podcast. Today is... Saturday, September 17th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about what is Christian unity. I'll confess to you, it's 1 a.m. right now. It is 1 in the morning. So it is technically Saturday, September 17th. But I have been unable to sleep, unable to rest, in part because a question posed of what is Christian unity has been on my mind. I've been tossing and turning, and I think it's just bothered me so much to be thinking, what is Christian unity? For some reason, it struck me especially poignantly tonight, or last night, I suppose, if it's now one in the morning. It struck me especially poignantly this past little while particularly with all of the business about Christian nationalism, with all of the controversy regarding how we should relate as Christians to politics, to the business of the city, of society, of the nation. You know, I was just recently invited to at least take a look at an organization which is trying to bring biblical values back into the state of Colorado, transformcolorado.net. You can go check it out yourself. But I was invited to take a look and see if it's something I'd like to be a part of or go to some events for by one of the two pastors at Summit View Community Church, Mike Bonnell. And I'm looking over the material and I'm looking at the next upcoming event next Friday in Gypsum, Colorado, which is quite a drive. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, I would like to be involved. But then there's a lot to navigate as far as how do other people relate to these things? And what can I say to help this make sense? Or does it make sense to me? Do I understand it? Am I thinking amiss about how Christians should engage in politics or whether Christians should engage in politics and the public discourse? At all. But we hear you and I both a lot of talk in our day about unity. And if you, like me, are a citizen of the United States of America, it's even embedded in the name of our country, the United States of America. It's right there. The root word for united is unity. So it's part of our national identity that we would be united. But then it's also part of our national identity that we are separate and distinct. So the unity that we have even between the states that make up the United States of America is not the kind of unity wherein we don't distinguish. I'm originally from Montana, for instance. That's my home state. Montana is not Colorado. I grew up for about 15 years through my childhood from 10 on till 25 
in Ohio, southern Ohio. Ohio is not Montana, and Ohio is definitely not Colorado. So we recognize there and every state in between that there are these separate states, and yet we call them the United States of America. And what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is we want unity, and yet we also recognize that these are states, and they're separate, and they're distinct. But we hear a lot of calls for unity in America these days, particularly particularly from the Democrats, particularly from the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. He calls for unity. But it's all it's always it's always unity on particular terms. It's always unity on the terms that the Democrats dictate. We want you to unify over here. And if you disagree with us, if you argue with us, if you debate us, if you maybe win the debate or win elections, we're going to call that cheating. And we're going to say that that is a lack of unity. What they mean by unity is that they always win. And that's not unity in the sense that I mean unity. And I don't think that's unity in a godly sense. And I don't believe that's unity in a biblical sense. But even there, I hear a lot of calls for unity in the American church in particular. And it leads me to a simple question. What is unity? What are we to make of calls for being united either in the church or in broader society? You know, I was looking at my emails the last time or two. I tossed and I turned and I decided to get up out of bed and I found an email from Canon Press, and it was highlighting a story that Meet the Press actually did. NBC News, Chuck Todd did interviewing Doug Wilson and talking about Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. And you can go back a couple of episodes, and you can see where I've just recently recorded a very long episode talking through the timeline of scandals regarding Doug Wilson. And as I've said in that episode and in the one in between that episode and this one, I think some of the scandals regarding Doug Wilson are just plain silly. Some of the accusations and allegations are just plain silly. They say more about the people raising those objections than they do about either the subject matter or, dare I say it, Doug Wilson in Christchurch. Some of the allegations are concerning some of the allegations are just in between. Uh, you know, really the devil's in the details here. And I don't quite know how to take the way this is worded. And I don't know if I should be trusting the person who is putting it out there, what they're going on. But nevertheless, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I like Doug Wilson. And I like what he's putting out. And I like the content that he is producing. And as he says in this interview with... NBC News with Meet the Press. You can't win a culture war if you don't have a culture. And more to the point, should Christians have a culture? Should we have a separate and distinct culture? Or should our culture look exactly like the culture outside the church? And in that case, what really is the point of being a Christian or going to church? If it's not transformative in any way, shape, or form, if your life looks just like that 
life you would have if you didn't go to church and you weren't a Christian, except maybe with a list of some things that you're not supposed to do, but otherwise your life doesn't look different, there is no culture, well then, what's the point? But I think some of the controversy surrounding one point in particular is very interesting to the folks over at Meet the Press, Chuck Todd's program. So this story is titled Christian Nationalism on the Rise, and Doug Wilson is to be the stand-in for Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism personified. What he's doing in Moscow, Idaho, is a case study for what they're trying to stamp out coast to coast. And the subtitle here for this piece from just two days ago says, An Idaho town grapples with questions about the role that religion should play in the public square as Christian rhetoric rises in American conservative politics. And it's very curious. It's so very, very curious because what's objected to in this piece is Christian rhetoric. It's not even necessarily specifically that they're saying, oh, these are fundamentalists or these are extremists. Increasingly, there's seemingly a recognition that these are just Christians. This is just what Christians believe. And are we okay with these Christians talking openly in the public square, participating in the public discourse, having their own separate, distinct culture? Are we okay with that? Are we going to tolerate these Christians having their own separate, distinct culture? Oh, ho, ho. What is this? Doug Wilson's talking about a spiritual takeover of Moscow, Idaho. We'll mock him or we'll say, that's a very dangerous idea. That's a very dangerous idea. We don't like that idea. We don't like the idea of bringing Christian culture back, making Christian culture great again, if you will. But the interview is very interesting, and it brings up a lot of questions that have been on my mind anyway. So I watched this interview, and it didn't help because I was thinking about unity, and then I was going to watch this video, and ah, now it's settled all these questions of unity. Now I've got it figured out. Now I can rest. Now, if anything, it made it worse because I'm looking at this question of unity. What is unity? And what, as Christians, are we called to when we're called to unity? We are called to unity in the scriptures, but what does that mean? And does it look like what the folks at Meet the Press want it to look like? Are they right? Should we unify on their terms? Should we unify with them? Does it look like the female pastors interviewed? Interestingly enough, no male pastors other than Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, being interviewed for this. But does it look like the female pastor of the Unitarian Church who says, I don't see these values that Doug Wilson is communicating when I read my Bible. You know, he's advocating for patriarchy and um and um that's not good <laughs> you know and and it's like hmm that wait let, let's back up are you telling me you don't see patriarchy in the bible all right well you are a unitarian after all but there again right there again unitarians it's right there in their name they are for unity, not with Doug Wilson, of course, but they are for unity with everyone who is for unity on their terms. 
And that's typically about the way that it goes. And I think even after a fashion, that's how it goes for Christians. That's how it goes for those of us who read our Bibles and search like I searched this evening for an answer to the question of what is biblical unity? What is the kind of unity that we're called to? So here's what I came up with, a few items, and I will share with you this word study because I'm not sleeping anyways, and I might as well record a podcast episode and talk it out and talk it through. And typically the way this works is over the years, when I find myself unable to sleep, if I get up and I write it out or I talk it out, either way, I'm typically able to sleep after that. So the sooner we get on with recording this podcast episode, the sooner I'm going to get some sleep tonight as I see it. So first of all, in what might be a very obvious question for some, but not necessarily for all, what is unity according to Merriam-Webster? And yes, I know we got to be careful with Merriam-Webster, but what does Merriam-Webster say unity is? Definition 1A, the quality or state of not being multiple. (laughs) Oneness. Okay. Next, a definite amount taken as one or for which one is made to stand in calculation in a table of natural signs. The radius of the circle is regarded as unity. If you don't know what that means, uh, I don't either, and I can't tell you. (laughs) Number two, identity element. 2A, a condition of harmony or accord. 2B, continuity without deviation or change, as in purpose or action. 3A, the quality or state of being made one, unification. 3B, a combination or ordering of parts in a literary or artistic production that constitutes a whole or promotes an undivided total effect also, the resulting singleness of effect or symmetry and consistency of style and character. Four, a totality of related parts, an entity that is a complex or systematic whole. Five, any of three principles of dramatic structure derived by French classicists from Aristotle's poetics and requiring a play to have a single action represented as occurring in one place and within one day. Six, capitalized, a 20th century American religious movement that emphasizes spiritual sources of health and prosperity. So there you have it. That's unity, according to Merriam-Webster. So in searching the English Standard Version for the word, I came across four results, one in the Old Testament and three in the New. Of the three instances in the New Testament, two are found in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, specifically the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, consider Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, 
life forevermore. Now it's interesting here, the footnote for verse 1, where unity is found, says, or dwell together. In other words, unity could have also been translated dwell together. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together or live together. And is that all there is to unity? You just live together? As long as you are in the same house, you're unified. As long as you're in the same proximity, you're unified. Or is the living together marked contextually here by holiness, a certain reverence for God, a certain prosperity and blessing, how good and pleasant it is. It's like precious oil on the head running down on the beard. This is talking about blessing. Dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion, is talking about blessing. And then in the last, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Very interesting. Moving on to the New Testament. That was the only instance in the Old Testament of unity. But in the New Testament, we find in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. Now it's interesting here couple things to point out. Look at what is adjacent to the call for unity of mind specifically. It's not just unity in the abstract. The psalm passage could be translated living together, dwelling together, brothers dwelling together. This is talking about unity of mind. But what's right next to it that we should have? Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, truth-telling, good deeds, and a pursuit of peace. Now, it's interesting. I'll point out, even though unity only shows up once in the Old Testament, at least in the ESV, a certain phrase, as one man, shows up fairly often, much more often in the Old Testament. And it's usually in the context of being roused for battle, for a martial action, for war, The nation of Israel, as one man, went out against a city or what have you. But it's interesting, too, that peace, peace, when you think about peacemaking in the New Testament, Jesus says, as we're going through at church in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And so I was wondering to myself, what is this peace? What does it mean? What is peace, actually? The word shalom, peace, can mean more than just a ceasing of hostilities. It can also mean wholeness, as in something that was broken and is put back together again, 
or if you will, a restored relationship. And isn't that a beautiful way to think of it? But also, doesn't it require that we think a little bit differently about peace and about unity? Maybe peace and unity in a biblical sense are much the same thing. God is the one who restores. God is the one who makes whole. God is the one who makes peace. And we're called to be imitators of God. So yes, we are called to make peace, to seek peace and pursue it. We are called to as much as depends on us, strive to live peaceably with all men. As imitators of God, we are called to be peacemakers. But what does that mean? And is that peace on any terms whatsoever? Is that peace like the world wants us to make peace? Or is it peace on God's terms? Is it peace according to his word? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Justice here also is adjacent to this business of making whole, of making peace. But it's interesting, in First Peter, we are called to have unity of mind, and we're told to have a humble mind. And then we're told not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, are we being told here, to not repay evil for evil to one another, especially? At least, I would say, but yes, sure, maybe especially. Whoever desires to live and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now that's something. That's something. Unity of mind, how do you get that? In part, tell the truth. Don't be deceitful. Also, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay, do good. Do you know what is good? Turn away from evil. Do you know what is evil? Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of God are on the righteous, and he listens to their prayers. So even here, you have a separating out. You have a pairing of two categories, one which we want to be in, and the other we don't. But that is to say, we can't be united with the one kind if we want to be blessed, if we want to have God's face shine on us, if we want God's face to be against us, well, then we do evil. But that is to say, there is such a thing as evil. If we say that there is such a thing as evil, and there is such a thing as speaking deceit, and that if we want to see good days, and we ought to, if we desire to love life, we can't have unity on terms contrary to this. You can't have unity with those who say evil things. You can't have unity with people who say deceitful things. You can't have unity with those who turn away from good and do evil. That's not the kind of peace that God calls us to. That's not the kind of unity that God calls us to. Moving on. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 Paul writes, Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Now notice here, the interest is in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as if both enthusiasm and sustained effort are required. But what's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Is that talking about unity with Christ or unity with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? My thought is that it must mean both if it can ever mean the latter. That is to say, it has to be at least the former unity with Christ, if it's going to be the latter. But notice here again, we are called to speaking the truth in love. We're not foregoing truth. We're not neglecting love. Both are integral parts of maturation in the body of Christ. Can we mature and have unity in Christ? If we stop speaking the truth, can we, if we put away love and let our hearts grow cold? Of course not. We are supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So here we have, again, these words that very often are about making whole broken things, repairing broken things, restoring broken things, reviving dead things even, by God's power. So we're called to unity, and peace is all wrapped up in that. It's in the mix. And yet, speaking the truth is critical, critically important. Why is that? Well, if part of what is broken is our understanding of what is true, what is good, what is right, That's why God gave us the ability to speak, so that we could coordinate the effort of filling in the gaps. We're not born knowing everything all to ourselves, but by God's grace, we have parents, we have family, we have friends, 
We have, in the case of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, that's interesting, too, because that unity of the faith seems as though it's not immediate. It's not the default. We're told to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and then we're also told until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, riddle me this. Could anyone object, could any Christian object to the idea that all who grow up to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, will have unity, and that will be a good thing, not an objectionable thing? No. No, of course not. But it's interesting that this seems to indicate that there will not be complete unity. We will not attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God from the get-go, right away, right from the jump. That does not happen immediately. That is part of the maturing process. That's part of the work of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And yes, unity is a part of that. But if we get our order of operations out of whack and we think unity is the thing that happens first and then everything else follows, we've got it backwards. You can't have the unity first because if you do, you might not ever get any farther than that. You might not ever get farther than just having unity. And unity on any terms whatsoever, if that's our goal, we could just be Unitarians. Just saying. Moving on, I decided to do a search for United as well, I thought, just for anyhow. Maybe there would be some more results. In the ESV, I came across one particularly relevant passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here again, the theme is continued. The importance of what we say in relation to unity. Unity of mind appears here again, and Paul makes an appeal to agreement and to being united, not just in mind, but also in judgment. But notice... What is the primary source of the quarrel? Why is he telling the church at Corinth? Why is he appealing to them regarding unity and not being divided? 
Let there be no divisions among you, he says. Some follow Paul. Some follow Apollos. Some follow Cephas. Some follow Christ. So this is a kind of factionalism centered on, if you will, three examples which have kind of built into a cult of personality, contrasted against folks who might maybe possibly be virtue signaling about being above all that because they're just following Jesus. Yeah. Oh, you follow Paul, huh? Well, I follow Jesus. Hmm. Huh. Tell me this. How does agreement happen? How do we become united in mind and judgment? Quarreling is ruled out. We're told don't. We're told to not to. But can there be genuine agreement without meaningful discussion or persuasion or speaking or reasoning and, if all the rest, listening? In my experience, the answer is just flat no. It's not possible. If we try to get unity and agreement and to have no division without reasoning, discussion, persuasion, both speaking and listening, what we get is superficial and fake agreement, not love being genuine. So also, we fall prey to the principle at work in Proverbs, that the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. I know a certain someone who I'm related to who would trademark that passage if he could. He does not quite mean by it what I would mean by it, but what I will say is so long as no one is ever allowed to come and examine the first to state their case, unity and agreement, apart from discussion and deliberation, will always wind up being everyone just trying to beat everyone else to the punch to be the first to state their case. And that's not exactly a grand way to unify around truth, goodness, and beauty. So that brings us to another question then. Are there negative examples of unity in the Bible? As it turns out, yes. Acts 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. 
and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, what is it we have here? The Jews in Achaia make a united attack on Paul. Verse 12 and 13. Are they more right than he is because they're united? He's just one man. They are united, after all. He's just one man. It says the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Of course they're not more right. They're opposing Christ. But if someone would say Paul is causing trouble because he upset the Jews in such a unifying way that they brought him to the proconsul, I would say they're not reading their Bible very carefully. And that's why it's not enough to just come into a situation and realize that some people are upset displaying a lot of emotion and throwing around accusations and allegations. It is not just enough to know that and no more. You have to consider who the witnesses are, what the nature of the charges are, what the evidence is. Imagine a scenario in which we were to assume that the Jews in this case are right because they're united in opposing Paul. We would not be right to unify with them. They're the unification party in this story. We would not be right to unify with them because they're opposing Christ. They're opposing the gospel. But what is their complaint? Their complaint is not, he's talking about God. That would be a complaint in our day. He's talking about God. We need separation of church and state. And by that, more and more people mean separation of Christians from public life. We want them to be entirely private in what they think, feel, believe. And that will escalate into more and more hostility and eventually violent persecution. But that's not the kind of complaint the Jews make against Paul. Their complaint to Gallio, the proconsul, is this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. As in, their claim is, it's not lawful to worship God the way Paul is reasoning. And it says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Verse 4, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That's something. Also, he was a tent maker, by the way. Fun fact. Not a main point, but a fun fact. The big idea I take from these is that, yes, unity is something we are called to pursue, embrace, desire, maintain, unity of the spirit, unity of mind and of judgment without divisions on God's terms, not on the terms of the mob, not 
going in with the wicked, not unity on just any terms whatsoever. Unity on God's terms. Now, if they're on God's terms, how do we get that unity? There's still that to figure out. You say, okay, well, you know, it's all Christians here. We need unity. We're supposed to be of the same mind. That's not describing lip service, and that's not describing pretending as though you're all on the same page. You just shake your head up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, sure. Yeah, yes. We're unified. We're all nodding up and down, and so now we're unified. No. What does your head bobbing up and down have to do with whether you're unified in your mind and in your judgment and in the spirit, really, truly? God is not thrown off the scent by that. He knows. And isn't it God we're trying to please in this? If that's not how you get actual unity, that's just how you get an appearance of unity, well, then how do we get actual unity? Well, in part, by discussing things, by doing what Paul was doing in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, reasoning, telling the truth, speaking the truth in love. That's how we do it, according to the word of God, because God has given us his word. Otherwise, what are we doing? Otherwise, what is the basis for our unification? And what's the reason for it? If we're not doing it to please God, then why are we doing it? And if we're not doing it because these are the terms God's given us, how are we going to please God? Because it is possible to unify on other terms. There just isn't a blessing from God for that. There won't be. In fact, we can expect negative consequences, punishment, judgment. And yet, we have blessing. We have the enjoyment to draw us towards faithfulness. And so we should be open to reason. Let our reasonableness be known and evident to all. And we should employ reason to try and persuade one another If we are not all in agreement, then that's where we have discussion. And we talk it out, and we try and come to an agreement. Not impatiently, not from selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I think I am tired enough now, an hour later, to call this good, get some sleep, get some shut-eye. So I'm going to go do that. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.